0: My name is Glenn Crocker. I am childhood friends with Chris Woolard and I guess adult friends too. Uh, he still claims me as a buddy. But um, Chris made a, a huge impact in my life when I was a teenager and changed my trajectory towards Jesus. And I'm so excited to see how he's continuing to pursue Jesus and make a difference in the lives of others. And so it's my honor to be here with you as his church family, to be able to share from God's word today and tell you a little bit about how I view God and Jesus and the difference that he's made in my life. Today we're going to be in the book of Exodus chapter 20, reading verses 4 through 6. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn there. That's where we're going to be. But I have a couple of questions for you before we get started this morning. How many of the Ten Commandments do you know? Could you write them all out right now? And if you could, can you write them all out in order? There's a little bit of a challenge, okay, for those of you that are taking challenges. What about this? How many or which ones of the Ten Commandments would you say that you have absolutely never, ever broken in all of your life? I played this game with my kids a few weeks ago when we were getting ready to take a trip. And so they were able to name all ten. They weren't in order, but they were able to name all ten. And then when I asked them the second question about which ones they had never broken, here were some of the things that they said. Dad, I've never murdered anybody. Good job, son. That's wonderful. I'm glad that you've never murdered anybody. That's outstanding. Now, you have to be careful playing this game, and, and you'll understand why. One of my kids chimed in and said, I've never committed adultery before. That almost started a whole nother conversation that you might not be ready to have just yet. So uh, just be careful when you decide to play this game. One of my kids said, which I think is probably so unusual in today's climate, they said, I've never misused God's name. I thought, wow, that's that's pretty impressive. I'm, I'm proud of you, son, for doing that. And then One of my kids chimed in later on and said, I have never, ever worshipped an idol. And I thought, I paused on that one and thought, "Uh, I'm not so sure. It's very easy for us to take a look at the issues that we read about in scriptures and think, because it's a little bit different times and we're in a different age, that, hey, we're good on that issue. But what if one of the greatest ploys of our enemy is to make us feel like we're good on these issues that we read about in scripture while sneaking it into our lives in a brand new way. This second commandment about idol worship is one such example because we're not talking about bowing down and worshiping little statues. No, this is anytime we take God off of his throne and we put something else in his place, that is an idol that we worship. And God has some very strong feelings about this that we're going to read about today. Now, we need to understand some context about this particular passage of Scripture. When the Ten Commandments are originally recorded for us by Moses, the people of Israel are between Egypt, the idol-worshiping factory of the world, And Canaan, the promised land, where God has promised them that they would worship Him and Him alone. Now, this is an interesting thing for us to take note of because the way that they were raised, their previous experience about how to go about life would suggest that they could worship many different gods. That's Egypt. That's the place where they left. And we all know how difficult it can be for us to overcome how we were raised When you're raised a particular way, to think a certain way, that can be a difficult thing to overcome. And the people of Israel are going to struggle with this. In Egypt, there was worship to many gods. And all throughout the Old Testament, there are many gods that the people of Israel would start to worship. Baal, the god of power and prestige. The goddess Ashtoreth was the goddess of fertility. Or Molech. The people who worship Molech fell in love with this lie that their religious leaders told them during that time, and they would sacrifice their children. Even though it defied logic and it defied their own love that they had in their hearts for their children, they would sacrifice their children because the religious leaders in their community told them, if you don't sacrifice your child, then Molech's just going to take them, so why not go ahead and offer it as a sacrifice? And they fell in love with this lie, and they would do these horrific and terrible things. In the Greco-Roman world, during the time of Jesus, there were idols that were worshipped as well. Zeus was the god of power. Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty and love. Artemis, goddess of fertility. or Maimon, the god of wealth and prosperity. But I, for one, am glad that we live in the United States of America, where we don't worship things like power, sex, beauty, and wealth. I am glad that we live in this place where we don't struggle with any of these same issues, right? No, the images have changed, but the issue is exactly the same. And the thing that's dangerous about it, Ashley Wooldridge was the first one to preach the sermon like this that I heard. And man, he made such good points. He said, the deadliest wars that we will ever fight are the ones that we don't even know are going on. So what does this issue maybe look like for you and me? Well, maybe there's some of you that are sitting at home today who are chasing the corner office. There's this place professionally, and if I can just get there, then my life will be complete and full, and that's everything that I will ever need. For some people, they worship places like the one that we're standing in. They Want to go to the gym, and why? Because I want to look good, and I want everybody else to notice that I look good. And this becomes something that we worship. We have to go. We have to put in the time because we want these certain results. Maybe for you, it's a little bit more subtle. You get the Southern Living Magazine And your home is an immaculate picture of what a a southern home should look like. And everything has a place. And if there's something out of place, then my world is not right. And maybe that has become the thing that you worship. Maybe for some of you, you're more like me. The thing that you worship is sports. Your whole day may be ruined today depending on who wins a game. That can be a pretty scary thing. And think about it even on this level. If we took somebody from the first century and asked them to go to a ball game with us today, what might they say about that experience? They sacrificed an animal and ate some of the things that they sacrificed. They painted their bodies from the tops of their heads to the bottoms of their feet, and they went into this large stadium where they shouted and cheered and cried and laughed. It was a worship experience. That might be how they described it. Maybe it's a little bit more subtle. Perhaps it's a device that we worship. Man, we don't recognize it, but it dominates our time. I've even heard teenagers say some pretty silly things like, I can't imagine my life without it, right? It's a pretty scary thing. Now, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6 say this. This is God's word. So tune in and listen, because this is important. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God says, you shall not bow down and worship any other God. This idea is that we could put something or someone in a place that was reserved solely for God. And our worship Is the thing or the things that we place our worth and our value in. And God says that He alone should be the place where our worth and our value come from. And I wish that I could tell you this morning that I've never struggled with this issue. But that would be a lie. And that's another commandment for another day. I love this illustration. It's one that I've used in some other sermons before. One of my kids normally comes with me, and my kids are pretty good little athletes. Maybe there's some of you at home that are pretty good athletes too, but I'll take a hula hoop. And I'll say, son, I want you to throw a football ten times through this hula hoop. And they're just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Great job, son. Wonderful. And then I'll take them and I'll spin them around ten or twenty or thirty times and hand them the same football. And I said the same accuracy. I want you to hit that target with the same level of accuracy that you had. And they never, ever can do it. What's wrong with them? They're so dizzy, unfocused, and disoriented because. They've been spun around so much. And I wonder how many times our Heavenly Father takes a look at us and we've gotten so busy chasing the things of this world that when He finally calls us to stop and hit this particular mark consistently for Him, for His purposes and plans for our life, I wonder how many times He sees us as dizzy, disoriented, and unfocused because we've been so busy chasing the things of the world. Idolatry is not just an issue, folks. It is... The issue, the root of every other sin that is in our lives. And there are people far smarter than the guy standing in front of you today who have come to that conclusion. Martin Luther, the great theologian, said you cannot violate the other nine commandments without breaking this one first. Kyle Eidelman, a a great preacher up at Southeast Christian Church, says idolatry isn't just one of the many sins. Rather, it is the one great sin that all others come from. And here's why idolatry is the root of so many different problems, because God is our creator. We were meant to put him in first place. And when we don't do that, life here and now and life eternally is going to be broken, Think about it this way. If the designer of an automobile sells you the car and says the car must run off of gasoline and you take a look at the creator of that automobile and say, that's just silly. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. How do you have the right to tell me how this car is going to run and work? Who are you? And then you try to run that car off of orange soda. How's it going to work out? Probably not too well. Why? Because the creator knows the intimate details about how this thing's going to work the best. And if you choose not to listen to those directions, if you choose to go your own way, it's, it's foolish. And your life, just like that car, will end up broken. Folks, we only get God's best when we put him first. We only get God's best when we put him first. Now, the Lord says some pretty intimidating things in this passage. He says some words in Exodus chapter 20 that we don't like as Americans. One of those words is that he is a jealous God. We have misconstrued and messed up the picture of what it means to have a righteous jealousy. Jealousy all the way around is frowned upon in our world, but the righteous jealousy that God has for us is not a bad thing. God's jealousy proves to us that he has a deep longing for each of us. When I stood up in front of my bride 14 years ago, 14 years I've been married. My wife is getting old. I'm going to be in trouble later. All right. When I stood up 14 years ago and promised that I was going to love her for the rest of my life, I will never forget what the preacher at our wedding ceremony told me that day. He said, Glenn, when you say yes to Jessica, it means that you were saying no to everybody else. When I said yes to her, she was going to be my most intimate, most special human relationship, and all others would fail in comparison to that particular one. And that's the type of commitment that God's calling us to make to him. When I say yes to him, it means that everything else is secondary. He's always primary. And that's how it has to work. Now, as a husband, I know how important it is for me that my wife love me like that. I don't want to be in a relationship with somebody who says, uh, yeah, you're, you're first on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on those other days of the week, hey, you second, third, fourth place, that's never going to work. And God won't be satisfied with one or two or even three days a week. He wants all of you all the time. He always wants to be first. Now, verse five goes on. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. As Americans, we don't like the word hate either. Not a happy word. Not a good word. We don't like that one. So God says, man, you hate me. This particular Hebrew word means to decrease something in value and put something else in its place. Exactly what we're talking about today with this idol worship. When we take God off of his throne, we put something else in his place. God translates that as hatred towards him. That's how he feels when we do that to him, that we hate him. And what's the result of doing something like that? Well, here's the other word that we really don't like. There's punishment. There are consequences when we live like that. Now, we really don't like this word punish. I've never liked it. Even as a kid, your father's going to be home to punish you in just a few moments. No, my world is over, right? We don't like this word. But the Hebrew word for punish here means to visit So when you go back and you read the passage, it says, For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing, visiting the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Sin doesn't have some type of curse that automatically, because I struggle with something, my kids are going to struggle with it. That's not how this works, and that's not what this passage is talking about. This idea of visiting, we have to take ourselves back to Old Testament times. The people in Old Testament times were tent dwellers. They lived in the same community for their entire lives. They never broke out and went anyplace else. It was all you and your family forever. So it was nothing for there to be a great-grandfather, a grandfather, a father, and a son. How many generations? I'm not real good at math. How many generations? Four, right? Four generations sitting right there. And here's what the passage is teaching us. When great-grandfather places God off of his throne and puts something else in his place. Four generations will view that and it will become a frame of reference for everybody that sits in grandfather's presence about what is okay for you to pursue, about how you're supposed to love God And if we set the wrong precedent for them, then everybody that comes after us will follow our example. We become that frame of reference for what's okay, what's good, and what's acceptable. So what's the challenge for us today, folks? Realize the level of influence that we have over those that sit in our presence. And maybe not just in our families, but others who sit in our presence at work and in our communities and in our neighborhoods. What type of influence do we have over those people? And what direction are we pointing them towards? Parents in the crowd, maybe there's a generational sin that's been a part of your family for a long period of time. Here's the truth that I know that generational sin can break with any generation. And maybe God wants whatever that thing is to stop with you. Maybe when it stops with you, it affects the projection and the trajectory of the rest of your family tree from here until Jesus comes back. What a wonderful thing that would be, because here's what verse six says, that God will show love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, here's an interesting thing. Verse five, we talk about this huge contrast, the sin, placing something other than God in the wrong place, in his place, can affect the trajectory of three to four generations But God says, you can change a thousand generations. He's not just talking about here and now. He's saying you will change eternity by placing God in the right place and keeping him where he needs to be. So what a wonderful and awesome challenge this is for us today. But idols can be a tricky thing because they are normally good things that we simply put in the wrong place. And anything can become an idol if it becomes a priority over or a substitute for God. So how do we discern the idols in our lives? Well, I love what Ashley Wooldridge did for Christ Church of the Valley. He gave them five statements or questions to think through to help them discern the idols that could be present in your life. Number one, he says, what keeps you from being involved in church most often? Sports are good. But how many kids today are missing an opportunity to worship Jesus so that they could go out, hit a ball, run around a base, and score a point? When you put it like that, it's really not that important. But a lot of people are making that choice. You know, whatever I prioritize as a dad is going to teach my kids what they need to prioritize in their lives. And not just that, but those other parents that don't know Jesus as well as I do, if they see me skipping church every weekend to attend a ball game, then they're going to see something about what it is that they need to prioritize in their life. Folks, we have influence in our lives. So what is it that's keeping you from being involved with the Lord's church? Because chances are that could identify an idol in your life. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6. He has a lot to say. In fact, if you want a place to study this next week after this message, go to Matthew chapter 6 and spend the whole week there. It's a really, really great kind of piggyback off of this sermon into studying there because Jesus said some powerful things. But here's what he says in verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given unto you. What about this one? What does your internet search history or your weekly screen report that you just got this morning reveal that you look at the most often? Is it social media? Are you on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat a lot, looking for approval, acceptance, and attention. Here's the truth, folks. Not only do you have God's attention, you were given His Son. He loved you so much that He was willing to sacrifice Jesus so that our sins. Could be forgiven, so those things that you're looking for in all these other places, Jesus already wants you to know that you have his attention and that he loves you so much. Maybe for you, the God that you're serving, if we were to take a look at your screen time, would be the God of pleasure. But intimacy comes from more than just a little blue pill or these momentary depictions of intimate moments. No, pleasure true pleasure is going to come when Jesus breaks through the clouds and each one of us have the opportunity to hear him say well done good and faithful servant and then we get to go and be with him that's where true pleasure is going to come from everything else is just false what about this one i will i'm willing to bet just a little bit of money all right not much because i am preaching this morning all right just a little bit I'm betting that if I looked at some of your phones and some of the screen time and some of the search history, politics has been a part of what you looked at the past few weeks. Just a guess, all right? The truth of the matter is this. No man or woman is going to fix America. No man or woman is going to fix this world. The only person that can do anything about it is Jesus. It's God. And he wants to work through the church to make it happen. So, We can't be so connected with that that we lose connection with Him because then all hope, folks, is lost. What about this one? Excluding my mortgage, what do I spend more of my money on than anything else? There are some things that you just have to pay for. They make me pay for my house every month. How unfair, right? I have to pay for food because my kids want to eat. That's unfair. But once I take all these things that I have to pay for, I have a lot of discretionary money. What do I spend all of that on? Because that might be a very telling thing about what it is that I worship. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter six, once again, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says later on, you can't serve two masters, you can't serve both God and money. How about this fourth issue or statement? Is there an emotion that you have trouble controlling? The most? Are you angry about something that's happened? Frustrated? Maybe it's not anger. Maybe you're afraid of something that's going to happen. And could it be that those emotions are now the most important things in your life? That if Jesus was calling you to do something, you're so angry or you're so afraid that you can't pursue that thing because you just don't feel safe. You don't feel like you can. If so, then maybe that thing has become the most important thing in your life. What about this one? Fifth and final. If I only had blank, you fill in the blank, I would have happiness, peace, and contentment. Is it a certain amount of money in your retirement account? A particular person that you'd like to have a romantic relationship? Or do the Panthers really need to win this afternoon in order for your life to be complete? If so, things are probably not going to go very well, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Here's my challenge for you. I want you to ask the people that know you the best. Ask your kids, ask your spouse, what do you think is the most important thing in my life? And when they answer, pay close attention because if they feel like that thing is more important than they are, chances are God is going to feel very, very similar. Now, have you ever cleaned out a closet? I've cleaned out a closet before, and uh, the, the darnest thing happens. I clean it out, and six months later, it's just as bad as it ever was before, if not worse. And you know what I have found to be the problem? The major problem is I don't give the closet a new purpose. I don't really have a plan about what we're going to use this space for. So the next time I have junk, where does it go? Into the closet that I just cleaned out, threw a whole bunch of junk away out of. And six months later, I'll have to do the same thing. And the same thing every six months, right? I wonder how often that wouldn't relate to many of our lives. How many of us on a regular basis realize there's junk there that needs to be cleaned out, but we don't give our life a new purpose. You see, God has something different in store for us. And the challenge is going to be today. These ping pong balls kind of represent all the sins and all the issues and all the things that could potentially Be problems, be idols that are in our life. And the invitation that God gives us and not making these things most important and making him most important is, hey, look, if you will just pour me in, I will begin to displace some of these things that don't need to be present in your life. But a lot of times what happens is we get to about this point right here. We're like, I am good. Look at the difference that Jesus has made in my life. Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this great? And all your church friends and family see how far you've come. Like, yeah, you're doing great. And then we stop. And the rest of the world takes a look at us. And what is it that they notice? We're completely content right here. But the rest of the world, all they see is a hypocrite. Somebody who says that Jesus has control of their life, but they still notice all of these issues and all of these problems. Now, folks, we're all sinners. We all have issues. We all have problems that we struggle with, myself included. But the invitation that God gives us is to allow him and his spirit to fill us up. And as he fills us up, this remarkable thing happens. It doesn't mean that there's never going to be issues and problems or sins in our life again. But as much as they push and try to get to be a part of who I am deep down, they're only ever going to stay on the surface. And something that's on the surface can be easily what? Can be easily removed, especially through the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through your life. Folks, this is the message from the second commandment of God in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Will you close with me in prayer?